0: Romans 8, and uh, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you that we can come together in this place to be able to spend time singing your praise, be able to spend time coming together around your word. And Lord, do pray tonight that as we open up the word of God that you would guide our time. Just uh, give us wisdom, Father God, and the understanding of its truth. Guide me as I preach. Allow me, Father God, to have your wisdom and understanding and Lord God have clarity of thought be able to put together that which you've laid in my heart that Lord it might be a blessing tonight to your glory and guide our time now as you spend it in your word for this we ask in Jesus name Amen Romans chapter 8 as we've said is the believer's declaration of freedom and we've seen first that this first declaration is freedom from judgment there is no condemnation. And then secondly we saw that the declaration was the declaration of freedom from defeat. But there is no obligation in Romans 8, 5 through 17. And now tonight we come to the third of four declarations. The third declaration is the declaration of freedom from discouragement. Or there is no frustration in Romans 8, 18 to 30. The Apostles introduced to us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 the thought of you and I participating in the suffering of Christ, so that one day we might participate in the glory of Christ. Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joined heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And so the concept of suffering is introduced to us here in verse Seventeen, and the concept of future glory is presented to us in relation to that suffering, and the presentation of this matter of relation between suffering and glorification becomes the theme of Romans eight verse eighteen to verse thirty The afflictions which are called we are called on to endure come because we are the children of god that 's what verse seventeen says because we are children of God we will suffer affliction but God has a plan God has a purpose in our suffering this suffering that you and I go through in this present time is preparing you and I and fitting you and I for glory what God's doing here on earth is he's getting you and I ready to fit in in those heavenly mansions to fit in in glory and the sufferings are all part of that work for the Lord is working in you and I to make us ready for glory. And Paul, here in Romans 8, verses 18 to 30, explains that no matter what the discouragement may be, no matter what the suffering is that you and I have to endure, one day it will be worth it all. And this confidence is based on our relationship to the Holy Spirit. Because as we've already seen in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit defeats sin, the Holy Spirit gives strength, the Holy Spirit gives sonship. And in the Christian suffering, the Spirit of God gives salvation, for want of another S, or hope. Which is what this passage talks about, the hope that we have in Christ because of our relationship to God through the empowering of the Spirit of God. I'm coming to you Said this about hope hope is the middle ground between the suffering of earth and the promise of God. The hope of God does not deny our present circumstances, but it engenders confidence that God's purpose and promises will prevail, making us not only fit for heaven, but fit for heaven's glory. Now, no subject is more urgently needed today than this subject. Of suffering and glory. With the world as it is today, with the world the way it is going on today, nothing is more important that you and I know that there is hope. There is hope in the midst of all the, the misery and mess of our world. There is hope. So tonight I want you to notice with me there are three hopes listed in Romans 8, 18 to 25 which is the first section of this 18 to 30 first section of this there's three hopes mentioned in these verses now first of all there is the there is sufferings hope sufferings hope verse 18 for i reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us verse 18 tells us this that the sufferings that you and I are going through right now, these present sufferings that we endure for the sake of Christ are not worthy to be compared with that which is about to reveal to us. In other words, these present sufferings that you and I endure are in such small dimensions compared to glory. If you and I look at what glory looks like, what eternity looks like, what well, you and I are going to be able to enjoy for all of eternity, the sufferings that we go through now are insignificant in the scope, the grand scheme of things. Now Paul was not ignorant or blind to the sufferings of human believers. I mean, he knows this. Paul, Paul's writing this letter. Paul has experienced suffering more than most. In fact, you and I will never suffer, probably, like the Apostle Paul suffered. And so, when Paul makes this statement in verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, he's speaking from experience. He's not denying the fact that believers suffer. He's not denying the fact that suffering is unpleasant. He's not denying the fact that sufferings don't happen. A lot of sufferings do happen. Yet he still considered the future glory far outweighed his present sufferings. The reason for that is this our sufferings are but for a moment, but glory is eternal. The sufferings you and I endure are but for a moment, glory lasts Forever, one commentator said this: "If we could just realise the extent of the glory about to reveal to us, we would not worry about the present suffering." You know, our sufferings should be—it may seem great to us. I don't want to diminish the suffering of saints by any stretch of the imagination. When we suffer for the Lord, suffering is never pleasant. It's never pleasant to go through trials and tribulations. It's never, tri- never pleasant to go through these difficulties of life. But we should remember that they are nothing in comparison to future glory. Let's go to the book of Revelation. And let's look at a little glimpse of what it's going to be like when we get to glory. Revelation chapter 21 if you would please. Revelation 21. And verse ten. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was the light unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear and crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the twelve at the gates twelve angels. The names written thereon which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, one the, on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and the south three gates, and on the west three gates. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed, and measured the city and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. The city length was four square, and the length uh, is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height as it was equal. And he measured the wall thereof, and 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall, of it was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like unto a clear glass. And the foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third Caledony, the fourth an emerald, and the fifth sardonyx, the sixth Sardis, the seventh Crystallite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth uh, Christoprasos, and the eleventh Janus, and the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls, and the several gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, and it was transparent glass. And I saw no temple, for the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, uh, are in are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the, all the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut all day, or, or, at all by day. For there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or of a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then if you drop to chapter 22 and verse 5, it says this, And there shall be no night there, and then, uh, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever that's a glimpse of what it's going to be like in glory so you get a picture of that picture in your mind what heaven's going to look like and this is John trying to describe an undescribable scene get a picture of all that you and I are going to enjoy for all of eternity the city of gold the golden street the crystal river being able to go to the throne of God the Lamb will be there and all the saints of ages past have gone; sin will be banished. And then you compare that with the sufferings that we endure now. Is there any one of the apostle Paul could say in verse eighteen, "For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed"? In Second chapter four and verse seventeen, the apostle makes this statement. He says that these light, that these light afflictions. Are to be prepared with the eternal weight of glory. Why is our affliction of light and not heavy? Because even the worst of what you and I experience here on earth, by the measure of eternity, is but for a moment. It will soon pass away, but that glory shall never, ever become dim. Is firstly in this passage, suffering's hope that one day it will end. Secondly, there is creation's hope, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of hope, who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Verse 19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creature. The phrase earnest expectation there of the creature is an expression of, of, uh, uh, the idea is that it's a state of earnest desire It's the idea of straining the neck. The the earnest expectation is that we're straining the neck. We're we're trying to get a glimpse of what's on the other side. We're we're trying to look beyond to see what's going on in glory. It speaks of the intense interest with which the Christian looks to the future. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, the son's expectation is that for which we're waiting for, that for which we're longing for, what we're looking for, what we're straining to see. And what are we straining to see? We wait for the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, the word manifestation there is the revealing of the sons of God. Now what's that talking about? Well, what it's talking about is this, that we await, we, we long, we strain our neck to see the, the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, we wait for the day of the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 picks up their theme. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, we even we ourselves groan with ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. The resurrection of our bodies from the grave will reveal our sonship. In other words when you and I finally are taken home to glory and you and I receive our glorified bodies you and I will receive the fullness of our salvation. We will be glorified. And the resurrection of our bodies will reveal our sonship. In other words We'll stand in heaven, sure, and everyone will know that we are the sons and daughters of God. This is what we're waiting for. This is our hope as believers. We earnestly await the, the revelation of the King, the coming of the King, and the glorification of our bodies. We long for the rapture. We long for the day that we'll hear the trump and the voice of the archangel, and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and those that are alive remain shall we'll be caught up to meet him in the air also, along with the dead, and we shall receive our glorified bodies, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's our hope. That's our expectation. That's what we long for. Verse 20 goes on to say this. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. This explains to us why it is that we are waiting. Why it is that we are hoping. It says, For the creature was made subject to vanity. And what's that speaking about is Genesis chapter three and passage like it. Let's go back to Genesis chapter three. And verse fifteen. Genesis three fifteen. <clears throat> this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, and God's confronted them, and he says in verse fifteen, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel unto the woman he said I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be of thy husband and he shall rule over thee and unto Adam he said because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life thorns also and thistles shall yet bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of this was thou taken, for dust thou art, and the dust thou shalt return. And it talks about the fact that you and I, the creature, was made subject to vanity. What it's talking about the fact is that you and I, because of Adam's sin, were made subject to that judgment that punishment that condemnation since man's fall creation's potential has been confined all of creation was affected by Adam and Eve's fall when Adam and Eve sinned that sin had consequences not only for Adam and Eve in the day they eats thereof they shall surely die they died spiritually immediately and ultimately they die physically. But that that wickedness, their sin, had an impact upon all of creation. And so all of the creature was made subject to vanity. Now the word subject to means subjected to by appointment of another. It's like a soldier joins the army and his rank is appointed to him by the army. The army determines what rank that soldier has, whether he be a private or a captain or whatever. The army determines what rank he has. Well that's the idea here. Subject to vanity is that the creator's subject to vanity was appointed to that by somebody else. And we've been appointed to that vanity by another. And the word vanity, a commentator said this, the word vanity here is descriptive of the present condition of the Christian as frail and dying, as exposed to trials, temptations and cares in the midst of conflicts of a world which may be emphatically pronounced vanity. We're subject to this world. Even believers, you and I are subject to this world. You and I experience all the difficulties, all the hardships, all the trials of this world. We're exposed to its temptations to his cares, to his conflicts. And then notice what it says in verse 20. It says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that subject to the same in hope, not willingly, not voluntarily. You and I did not volunteer to be subject to this old world. You and I did not volunteer to experience all the difficulties we face. You and I did not volunteer to be subject to uh, the consequences of sin. It was not voluntarily. Not a matter of choice. We didn't choose to be what we are. We didn't choose to be confined to this flesh. We didn't choose to have the difficulties of this life. Our joys are marred. Our peace is disturbed. Our Flick, affections wonder a life is to a certain degree a life of vanity and vexation you when you read, when you read uh, uh, Solomon talking about uh, vexation upon vexation in lamentations you and I can identify him with sometimes so note this appointment, is an appointment made by somebody else for us. And the appointment was made by God. God chose to place us in this condition. God's the one who made the decision in the Garden of Eden that when Adam and Eve sinned, that the curse would stretch to not only Adam and Eve, but to all creation, and indeed to every person born on this earth, we will be subject to that vanity. But God did it for a wise purpose. That's what it says in verse uh, verse, 8. Sorry, verse 20 of chapter 8. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him, that's by God, who hath subjected the same in hope. In other words, God subjected you and I to vanity, to this life that we're engaged in, to all the sufferings and hardships and everything else. God subjected you and I to that so that you and I might have hope. So the question is, how is this hope? How are we supposed to get excited about the fact that we're subjected to vanity? How is that hope? How is that how does creation have any hope in this? Well, Genesis chapter three, which we read earlier, gives the answer. It says, now I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. God said, What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna produce via the seed of the woman a Saviour. That saviour is going to defeat the devil. He's going to defeat sin. He's going to defeat the grave. He's going to conquer the enemy and be able to give salvation to all who call upon the Lord. Now put in the context of Genesis again. With the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin being forced upon them, you know, they chose to disobey the Lord and therefore they... Suffer the consequence of that disobedience. Genesis chapter 3 spells that out it clearly for what God said to them would be the consequence of their disobedience. So Adam and Eve were forced to, ex- to experience the consequence of disobedience, but with that also there came the means of deliverance. They were banished from the garden. And they were subject to death. But death meant that they could be saved. We can look at the whole thing of Genesis chapter 3 and we look at it negatively. And there are many negatives about it. They sinned against God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for which they should not eat. When God came and called upon them, he found that they'd sinned. And God then judges them for that sin. And he... (coughs) he curses the ground for their sake and he curses them and they cast them out of the garden of Eden and he puts the angel with a flaming sword at the entrance and they're not allowed in so that God says because he, therefore they could not eat of the tree of life. So to put it in from God's perspective all that God now does to Adam and Eve is for a good reason. God condemns them to vanity to live in this world, to live in this body, to ultimately die so that ultimately (coughs) they can receive salvation. So that ultimately they can be saved. So that ultimately somebody could die in their place. If there was no death, Christ could not die. If there was no death, Christ could not have taken our place upon the cross of Calvary and died for us That's the hope of creation here. Verse 21 explains this. It says this, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption in the glorious liberty of the children of God. Even though there was a curse upon mankind and the curse of sin brought corruption There is also a means provided for the eventual deliverance from that curse. God did curse the ground. God did curse Adam and Eve. God did condemn them to death. But with that, with that judgment upon them in the Garden of Eden, there was also the means provided by which God would save them and save us. Even for Adam and Eve, God shed the blood of animals to make coats of skin to cover their nakedness, which was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. That in picture form speaks of the deliverance God has provided to you and to me through Jesus Christ. Yes, we're subject to vanity. And we were subject to vanity by God himself so that you and I could also be the recipients of the deliverance. That's the hope. God, with the sentence of death, also made a way of deliverance from the bondage of sin. If there was no death, there could be no salvation. There could be no hope. But because God said, that in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And God ensured that mankind does die. Therefore, there is the possibility of salvation. There is hope for all who believe. Because all who believe will have the effects of the curse re, uh, reversed, and you and I will receive a glorified body one day. Because Christ died, there's deliverance. From slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look in verse 21 again. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Because we're the children of God we have this liberty. We have this hope. That you and I will one day be freed from the bondage of this flesh. And the bondage of this old world. And we will be glorified this was always God's plan from the fall to free his creation from the bond of sin and bring it into a position of sonship through that deliverance remember Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world this was God's plan he did this of course so that you and I can be saved from sin that's our hope. Now notice verse 22. It says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. He wants to explain to you and I now this matter of this curse, this subjection to vanity, this curse that we're under. And the curse of sin is upon all creation. He's reiterating that this curse uh, situation that was brought about by the sin of Adam and Eve is upon all creation that includes believers it's upon all of us a woman in childbirth it groans and travails in pain until deliverance for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now creation is groaning, creation is in agony, creation is in the, it, it travails like a, a woman who is giving birth. And it says until now. The answer had not yet appeared when Paul wrote Romans. And the until now still applies today. We are still under the curse. Until now, this creation This whole creation still groaneth and travaileth in pain together even today. The deliverance has not yet happened. You and I have not yet been glorified. And if you're not sure about that, just look in the mirror. We know that we have not yet been glorified. The groaning is not just the unsaved creation But it's carried over into all those that believe. We're groaning today under the weight of the fall, aren't we? Daily we experience it. Everywhere we go. Do a bit of gardening. You know that we're groaning under the weight of the fall. There is weeds that grow up all the time that need to be dealt with. Get a little bit older and feel those aches and pains in your body. You know you're groaning under the fall. Look at mankind and the wickedness of man. Just watch what our politicians are agreeing to and proposing and accepting to be okay today. And we know that we're groaning under the curse. All of creation groans. We're groaning under the weight of the fall. But, beloved, the great news is this. There is hope. Because this groaning will not last. And it cannot last, for as a woman in travail, in in childbirth, the pain of the birth goes when the baby is born, so when you and I are glorified, it will go away. We will be delivered from this corruption. One day creation will be delivered. And in that day the groaning creation will become the glorious creation. That will take place when Christ returns to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years then creation will be restored to how it was in the Garden of Eden go back to Isaiah chapter 11 please Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall feed they Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a day that will be. That's the millennial kingdom when God restores creation back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden, and you and I will be there. And you and I will partake partakers of that grand day when Jesus Christ stands on this earth and restores this creation back to the way it was. You and I will be there to witness it. It's going to be a glorious day. And then one day when God establishes the new heaven and new earth, all creation will be delivered. Go with me to Revelation 21, please, again. Revelation 21. And this time, let's read from verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride. Adorned for her husband, and heard a great voice out of heaven saying, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is with me. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying; neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away." And He that sat upon the throne said, "Behold, I make all things new." And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. One day, a new heaven, a new earth, and all creation will be delivered. And as believers, we need to learn not to focus on today's sufferings, not to focus on the decay of our old world as it rots and falls apart under the weight of the curse that's upon creation but you and I need to look up. We need to look to the glory that is yet to come. We need to look to heaven. Look beyond the decay. Look to glory. Verse 18 says, For I reckon that the suffering of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 5, please. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And verse fifteen. And that he died for all, that they sh- which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man of the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we know him no more. Therefore if any man be in Christ is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, and coming command unto us the word of reconciliation. Now we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. He hath made him to be sin for us in you sin that we might be made the rights of God in him. That's the reality of our salvation, beloved. And that's what we ought to glory in. One day, today's groaning will be exchanged for glorious liberty. So it says at the end of verse 21, it says, from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. We have hope today. Because one day we will be delivered. There is suffering's hope that one day it will end. There is creation's hope that one day we will be delivered. And thirdly and lastly, there is redemption's hope. In verse 23 to 25. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting the adoption to with redemption of the body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Romans 8.23 explains that we we groan, for we've experienced the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what it says there. And not only they, speaking about the groaning, not only they, but we as but ourselves also, that's us, which have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan within ourselves, waiting the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. You and I groan because we've experienced the first fruits of the Spirit. You and I have had a taste of glory. You and I have had a taste of the blessings that glory brings through the indwelling ministry of. Of the Holy Spirit, because you and I are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you and I have received a taste of what it would be like to live in glory. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that the Spirit of God is the earnest or is the down payment of our redemption, of our inheritance. He's the deposits. If the Holy Spirit's the deposit, beloved, then what does glory look like? If the third member of the Godhead is the gift of God that dwells within you and I, and He is the deposit for our inheritance, then what is the inheritance? Or what does the inheritance look like? You and I have tasted the first fruits of that redemption because we have the the indwelling Holy Spirit. And therefore we groan within ourselves. The reason why you and I long for Jesus to come again is because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit makes us want to see the Lord so that we might receive our new glorified body, to be with the Lord, to be set free from this world, to be set free from the wickedness of this world and to live and serve the Lord forever. That's what we long for. That's what we want. We're waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Redemption here is the glorification of the body, which is a thrilling climax to our salvation. Look with me in Philippians, please, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. You and I are going to receive a glorified body. We all experience the consequences of sin while we're in this body. Our bodies are frail. They get old. They wear out. Our bodies have scars of sin which constantly battle against their minds. We groan in this body waiting for the adoption, waiting for the redemption, the glorification of our bodies. Now we need to know that the word adoption here in verse uh, 23 is different than the word adoption in verse 15. In verse 15 we read, for you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba Father. It's a different adoption here. Adoption here, rather, the adoption back in verse 15, of course, we find that we're already called by verse 23, we're already calling God Abba Father. We're already heirs of God, already joined heirs with Christ. We've already been placed into God's family as adult sons with all the rights and privileges of adult sonship. That took place in salvation. You and I at salvation were born into the family of God, and at the same time we received the adoption as adult sons. We became the joint heirs with Christ at that moment. We received all the rights and privileges of sonship at that moment, the moment you and I were saved. So you and I are already, if we're saved, we're already in the position where we can call him, have a father. We're already in a position where we're joined heirs with Christ. We already have received all the privileges of adult sonship. But that's not what's going on in verse 23. Because verse 23 we see is in reference to the redemption of our bodies. And the redemption of our bodies is the full realisation of all that we possess in Christ. You and I are joined as Christ right now. You and I have all the rights and privileges of sonship. But there's one thing you and I don't have right now. We don't live in heaven. But there is a day coming when you and I are going to experience the fullness of that salvation. The fullness of that adoption. You and I are going to be glorified. And in that day, We'll take it all the privileges that are ours because of children of God. We'll shed the curse of this body. We'll shed the curse that we dwell under. And we'll no longer be subject to this sinful world. And take up the full benefits of our inheritance. In that day you and I will stand in heaven's glory. And you and I will not only be able to call him Abba Father. You and I will live with our Abba Father. And what's more we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Getting excited yet? You know for the believer we hope for the rapture. We hope for the redemption of our bodies. And we ought to. That's the whole point here. And he goes on in verse 24, he says this, For we are saved by hope. For hope that is seen is not hope. For what an man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? In verse 24, Paul returns to the idea of hope that he first mentioned in verse 20, For the creature was made subject to the vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected us, <coughs> subject to the same in hope. So he takes us back to this subject of hope, and he says here that we are saved by hope. We are saved by hope. Now the phrase "we are saved" is in the past tense. And it's actually saying we were saved by hope. Now this salvation by hope is a reference to our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a hope so; it's a, it's a no so. We know that we are saved because we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a past experience, this is a past hope. We were saved by hope, by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Saviour. The second clause in this verse, but hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for, is logical. It's just a long way of saying that when we get to glory, we'll no longer hope for it. Okay, You don't hope for something that you already possess. Okay, we When we get to glory, we won't have to hope for glory. We won't have to hope to be with the Lord. We won't have to hope to walk the golden street. We won't have to hope anything. We'll be there. So what he says in verse 24 is that but if hope that is seen is not hope, because what man seeth, why does he hope for it? Okay? So the, the, when hope's gone, once you are experiencing the result of that hope. And then he says in verse 25, he says this But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? If we don't see what we hope for, then impatience or endurance. We have to await the fulfillment of that hope. And that's the point. You and I have been saved by hope, by faith in Jesus Christ, we've been saved. But there is still something we hope for. And what we hope for is the deliverance from this old world and the glorification of our body. We have been saved, but in hope we await, enduring the consequences of the curse, groaning under its weight waiting for in hope for his coming which ultimately is the redemption of our bodies. Our glorious hope is the day that you and I will be with him and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. In faith we became the children of God in hope we patiently await the day when he'll take we will be able to take up the full benefits of that inheritance and we're taking home the glory to be with the Lord. When Christ returns we shall receive the fullness of our inheritance but while we wait we have an assurance that the best is yet to come look in Titus please Titus we've nearly finished, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 here is our hope looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself peculiar people zealous of good works the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior that's what we long for as believers while we wait we need not get frustrated as we see and experience the suffering and the pain of this world because one day beloved it will be worth it all how can a Christian ever be discouraged ever be frustrated when we already share the glory of God and have the promise of future glory our suffering today guarantees that one day you and I will be glorified with Jesus when he comes We have no need to be frustrated with this world because, beloved, one day it will be worth it all. The truth is, for you and I as believers, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this night. We thank you for the wonderful truth of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. The suffering's hope that one day it will end. Creations hope that one day it will be delivered. And redemptions hope that one day we will be with you for all of eternity. That one day it will be worth it all. Because the best is yet to come. Help us, Father God, in this world to put our focus upon glory. So that, Father, the things of this world might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Let's now as we close the hymn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing 149 in closing. Couldn't think of a better way of ending this than singing, It Will Be Worth It All. And I trust tonight you're rejoicing. I trust tonight that you're excited about the fact that one day we will see Him face to face, and in that day it will be worth it all. We're going to stand and sing the first and the last verse of 149 after the introduction when we see Jesus. Thank you.